Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. I used to have this old magic kit. It had a deck of cards, a trick quarter, a bottle with a rope in it, and some other things I can't quite remember now. That damn bottle was my nemesis. The way the trick went was simple. You had this bottle and this length of rope coming out of the top of it. You'd take the rope out and show it wasn't a trick rope or anything, and then put it back into the bottle. You'd drop the bottle, hold the rope, and the rope would stay stuck in the neck, holding it up. Simple trick, right? I never could get it to work. The way the trick was supposed to work was that there was a little rubber ball in the bottle, too. And that, when you turn the bottle over, would wedge itself into the neck of the bottle along with the rope, and that's what would hold the bottle up. But this required far too much sleight of hand for me to get right. Every time I'd turn the bottle over, the person I was trying to do the trick for would immediately know what I was doing. The rubber ball would rattle around in there, or I'd have to turn the bottle upside down for far too long while I made sure it was really wedged in there. I used to love magic. I'd tune into every single magician special I could in the 90s. I'd try to guess what was going on in the trick, how they did it. I'm pretty sure, at a certain point, my parents thought I would become a magician, but, like I said, I was miserable at magic. When those Magician Secrets Revealed shows started airing in the late 90s, I was of two minds. On one hand, I was excited to finally get to see how the hell these magicians did these crazy tricks, but on the other, I wasn't satisfied. I didn't know why then, but I do know now. I wasn't satisfied because I've come to believe a life without mystery is a boring life indeed, and some things hidden in dark or mysterious corners of reality should stay hidden. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, a single story. In Parlor Trick, a magician uses a mirror for a magic trick. Death and dying. The thresholds between this world and the next. The boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We're going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. He had been invited by a friend, and when he arrived, we knew the party would be strange. 
It was a small party, a housewarming party, and when this stranger arrived, our new home was already filled with the smells of appetizers, breads, and various baked goods, some made by my wife and I, and some made by our guests. We had a fire going in the fireplace for the first time to ward off some of the cold. The oven in the kitchen and the fireplace in the living room kept the house warm. Four of our closest friends were eating small plates of treats and drinking warm cocktails when this man, who we soon learned was called Gordon, placed an oversized trunk on the floor near the fireplace. Then, he and the friend of ours who had invited him introduced him to the party. The six of us all have names, of course. My name is Phil. My wife's name is Whitney. Our guests that evening were another couple, Mark and Henry, one of my wife's oldest friends, Melissa, and the man who was now introducing us to Gordon, Bill. Bill pitched Gordon as a magician, and one that would work for free, work for the pleasure of it. Perfect for a housewarming. And I had to admit the prospect of having some offbeat entertainment for the six of us sounded intriguing. Whitney took a little more convincing. A housewarming was for warming the house. Good drinks and good conversation with old friends. Not for inviting sorcerers into our living room. My point was that he wasn't a sorcerer, he was a magician, and having a half hour's worth of entertainment in the middle of a party didn't preclude it from its primary purpose of warming the house. After insisting over the span of several days, she finally relented, and I instructed Bill to invite Gordon to perform. I offered Gordon a drink as he unlatched his trunk, a dazzling array of implements laid within. How exciting. An old-fashioned magic show. How rare. He politely turned down my offer of a cocktail, and so I was left with two in my hands. I downed one quickly to avoid carrying two glasses, and returned the now-empty glass that was meant for Gordon to the kitchen. The party proceeded as a party does, while Gordon set up for his act. He took a surprisingly long time to construct an elaborate stage setting, so the six of us had ample time to have a conversation while he was busy. How long have you known this guy? Melissa asked Bill. I mean, he has a name. I introduced you to him, so you wouldn't have to call him Guy, Bill said, settling into Bill and Melissa's regularly antagonistic relationship. These two liked each other well enough to get along, but Bill never matured past being mean to the girl you like on the playground, and, in turn, Melissa thought Bill was kind of an ass. Whitney and I had a bet going on about what would happen first between these two. I bet Melissa would tire of Bill's shit and tell him to fuck off, and Whitney thought Bill would ask her out before Melissa got completely sick of him. Neither of us were sure if she'd say no to a date if it came to that. His name is Gordon, remember? Bill said. Yes, okay, I remember, Melissa said, rolling her eyes. To answer your question, not that long, Bill said. I've never seen his act, if that's what you mean. I heard about him through a friend and thought it could be fun for us. I agree, I said, glancing into the living room from the kitchen where the six of us were gathered. You do? Mark asked, pouring two more drinks for himself and Henry. He glanced up at me and saw the confusion on my face. I just mean you like magic? I didn't know that about you. Yeah, sure, since I was little. You remember back in the 90s there used to be magic specials on network TV a lot? I don't think I ever missed one. Huh. Mark finished the drinks and handed one to Henry. And this, of course, is something he's never mentioned to me in five years, Whitney said, 
alluding to my horrible habit of not telling her super obvious things about my childhood. You could fill the Grand Canyon with things I don't know about my own husband. Oh, come on, it's not like that sort of thing comes up naturally, I said. How about any of the times I've asked you to tell me something I don't know about you, and you've struggled to find anything? Whitney asked. I thought about that for a minute. I mean, I don't know why I need to tell you every single detail about my life, I said. You don't, Whitney said, turning to Mark and Henry. Do you two like magic? I love magic, Henry said, but... I don't, Mark said. Why not, I asked. I don't know. Doesn't it seem a little childish? Like, I can see the allure of the big stage tricks, Mark said. The, like, disappear from the stage and appear in a cage suspended 30 feet above the crowd type stuff. That's impressive, I guess, even if it's not magical per se. But a guy in your living room, with a few card tricks. I bet he's got more than card tricks, I said. Maybe even a little rabbit and a hat, Whitney said while looking at Mark and sipping her drink. I sighed. You guys really aren't going to give this a chance, I asked. Well, of course we're going to give it a chance, Melissa said, but I agree, it's a little weird. It's weird now, too, I said. Very weird, Whitney said, turning to me. Told you. She smirked. When Gordon pulled us back into the living room, he had set up a six-inch high box near the fireplace that he used as a small stage and a small raised table draped with a black cloth. On top of the table, he had arranged several small trinkets and an old oil lamp, and on the floor, he had set up an easel with a large square mirror. Gordon asked us all to take a seat, and so we did. I sat with Whitney on the couch. Mark stood behind Henry, who sat on the armchair. Melissa joined Whitney and I, and Bill stood back near the doorway, back into the kitchen. Gordon asked Bill to hit the lights, and for a moment, after they went out, Gordon appeared to me to be wreathed in flame. It was, of course, only the roaring fireplace behind him, but with the lights out, the fire behind him seemed to mingle with his silhouette. He struck a match with great showmanship, and with theater lit the oil lamp beside him. Gordon squared his shoulders to us, stood tall, and was silent for a moment. And then he spoke. What you're about to see tonight in this house will change your life, Gordon said. Your perception of the things around you, these physical objects, these people you hold dear, the very fabric of your reality will be forever altered in your eyes. After you see what I mean to show you, and I mean really show you, your sight will never be the same, and so I warn you, after tonight there is no going back. Is there anyone that does not agree to these terms? The door is there, and you are free to go. Mark laughed and put his hand on Henry's shoulder. Whitney smirked next to me and looked at me out of the corner of her eye. I shifted my weight, settling into the couch, and smiled. Melissa got up from the couch. I... this... she said, unable to find the words for whatever she was feeling. She took a half-step toward the door and then a half-step back and sat back down on the couch next to Whitney. Whitney put her hand on Melissa's knee. Are you okay? Whitney asked. Yeah, I'm fine, Melissa said. And when we had all settled, Gordon narrowed his eyes and scanned the room, and then started his act. 
just a quick reminder that if you wanted to help the podcast, the best way to do that is to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Or you could recommend us to a friend or tweet about the show. And hey, thanks for listening. Gordon picked up one of the trinkets from the table to his side and showed it to us. It was a small stone bowl, a mortar, and inside, a small pestle. He reached deep into his jacket pocket and pulled out several sprigs of some herb, threw them into the bowl to grind them up with the pestle, and then set the bowl down. Another match lit this herb on fire, and then he looked at us and smiled. Just to set the mood, he said. He waved his hand above the bowl. Faint wisps of smoke curled around his fingers and then dissipated into the air. The smell of thyme filled the room. Now, for the fun part, Gordon said, his voice dripping with drama. For my first trick, I'm going to give this rat... He opened a small box at the rear of the table and removed a rat. It scurried around the table for a moment to investigate its surroundings before it settled on a spot to stop near the edge. The ability to talk with this. He retrieved a small brown bottle from his trunk and shook it so we could hear the liquid shake inside. He unscrewed the top and stepped off the stage, passing the bottle to Bill. Smell it and pass it around, he said, while returning to the stage. This is a small bottle of something very special. When the moon is just right, bright and full, but also aligned with the constellation of Ficus, the serpent bearer, you may harvest this special liquid. I watched the bottle pass from Bill to Henry and then to Mark, and each time they smelled it, their nose turned up. Mark passed the bottle to me, and I passed the bottle under my nose. It smelled strongly of copper and also of the forest floor, dirt and rotting leaves. I passed it to Whitney, who declined to smell it, and passed the bottle to Melissa. The Greeks named Ophicus, Gordon continued. In the constellation, they saw the god Apollo struggling with a giant snake. But they were wrong. It is not Apollo, and the figure is not struggling with a giant snake. No. It is the unnamed man, the collective us, the unconsciousness of humanity, and it is embracing a giant worm. Gordon retrieved the bottle from Melissa. Like I said, when the moon is right and aligned with a ficus, worms, simple ordinary worms, become incredibly active, wriggle to the surface of the earth, and that's when you harvest them. He shook the bottle again. Are you telling me that's worm guts, I asked. That's one way to put it. In any case, this is an incredibly powerful liquid. He took a small glass dropper and plunged it into the bottle. And when he removed it, it was filled with a dark brown ooze. He held it up toward us, and I felt Whitney squirm next to me. I placed my hand on her thigh to comfort her, but then shifted forward on the couch to get a better look. When worms are harvested in this way, they are given a piece of the great worm's power. 
In my left ear, I heard Mark lean down and whisper to Henry, This is a weird story. A weird way to frame a magic act. Totally, Henry whispered back. I tried to ignore them and keep my eyes sharp, looking for the secret that makes this trick work, whatever the trick ended up being. I wasn't quite sure what the magician had in store yet. He said he meant to make the rat talk, but since he introduced the rat, he hadn't returned to it. So maybe that was just a diversion. Would anyone like to taste this liquid? Gordon asked. And an immediate and total silence fell over the six of us. No. No, 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 Whitney said. No one's eating worm guts in my living room. I laughed and said, Well, of course it's not actually worm guts. I mean, it's all an act. It's meant to get you worked up so you're not as receptive when Gordon switches the bottles or palms the coin or whatever he's about to do. Gordon smiled and laid on some charm. Oh, I think you're vastly underestimating my skills as a sorcerer if you think what I'm about to do is a mere trick, sir, he said, smirking and winking. See? I said. Anyway, I'll taste it. I stood up from the couch from my place next to Whitney and walked over to Gordon. He offered me the dropper. I let two drops of the brown goo fall on my tongue, and Mark and Melissa both let out an audible groan. I smacked my tongue against the roof of my mouth, surprised at how repulsive it tasted, like mud that had languished in some old bog for a millennia. That and shit. I gagged slightly, but managed to hide that reflex from my guests. Whitney saw right through it, though, and shook her head with a small smile. My hubris had harmed me once again. Well, that is disgusting. You were expecting different? You just ate worm guts, after all, Gordon said, finally letting himself laugh at the gag he had pulled on me. The rest of the room laughed too, and I, after I allowed my saliva to wash the taste out of my mouth somewhat, chuckled as well. Anyone else want a taste, I asked, no one in particular, as I returned to the couch. There were no other volunteers. Gordon returned the rat, which, I was right, was just a diversion, back to his bag. Now, that brings us to your entertainment for the evening, Gordon said. Finally, Melissa said at the other end of the couch. What we are going to do tonight is open a direct line of communication with the great worm itself. I heard Whitney snicker next to me. This should be good, Henry said, openly mocking Gordon. It will not be good by most people's standards, and you will leave here forever changed, Gordon said with a too serious tone that sent Whitney into giggles. He moved the stone pestle to the center of the table. I acquired this pestle and this mortar that goes with it while traveling through the south of this country, in a small flea market outside of Mobile. If you haven't visited a flea market, there are some choice items to be had. This item, Gordon said, indicating the mortar and pestle, though the man selling it was unsuspecting is powerfully magical. Perhaps owned by a mystic in the early days of this country, or even before. He waved his fingers once more through the curling smoke of the burning time. Whitney wasn't buying the performance, and neither were Henry or Mark. I was having a good time, though, and Melissa seemed to be getting into it a fair bit as well. Burning herbs creates a canvas 
on which we will now be able to paint, so to speak, Gordon said. He brought the small bowl to his mouth and blew into the smoldering herbs. Smoke billowed up to the ceiling and then spread. Then he emptied the bowl into the fireplace. Whitney leaned over to whisper into my ear. This is getting a little out of hand, don't you think? Are we really just going to let this guy do this weird stuff in our living room? It's just a trick. Just let him do the thing, say ta-da, and that will be that, okay? I know you don't like it, but I want to see what he's got planned. Gordon, with impeccable showmanship, grabbed the bottle of liquid I had tasted earlier and poured the entire contents into the stone bowl, along with other powders and liquids from the pockets of his jacket. While creating this concoction, he told another story about the mirror next to the table. This mirror is what will allow us to commune with the great worm. I acquired this mirror during a train ride across Siberia, Gordon said. What were you doing in Siberia? Mark blurted out. Only traveling the world, Gordon said, seeing what this planet has to offer, talking to the people, learning about local customs, acquiring forbidden knowledge. A grotesque smile wrapped across Gordon's face. He finished adding ingredients to the stone bowl and then began grinding it all together. He picked up the stone bowl to make this easier and so that he was able to move about freely. He paced back and forth in front of us as he continued the story of the mirror. On this Siberian train, I met a man dressed in fine clothes. He spoke English, but with a thick Russian accent, bought me several drinks, and told me about himself. He was a collector, a collector of everything. Strange objects, sure, but also esoteric knowledge. When those two passions crossed, he was especially interested. Then he turned the conversation to me. I told him that I was a conjurer, a sorcerer, a magician, and this, of course, piqued his interest. He asked me if I would like to see a bit of magic, and I happily said yes, and he led me back to his compartment. Oh God, you were lucky you weren't murdered by a Russian serial killer, Whitney said. If you're telling the truth about all of this, of course. I assure you, I am telling the truth, Gordon said, and that thought did occur to me. But the allure of the unknown was just too great. I had to know what he wanted to show me. He unveiled this mirror, Gordon said, while waving his hand in front of it, which he had obscured with white linen, and then asked me to sit in a chair he had set just in front of it. I did, and then he asked me to concentrate. As Gordon related this part of the story, he fetched a small, foldable stool from his bag and set it in front of the mirror. Now, who would like to see what I saw? I again raised my hand, eager to help, but Gordon waved me away. No, no, someone new. Someone who hasn't yet helped. You, perhaps? He motioned to Henry, and while he sighed in response, Henry agreed. Okay, okay, let's get this over with. Henry lifted himself out of the armchair and walked to the stool. He sat in front of the mirror and looked at his reflection. Then, Gordon placed his hand on the back of Henry's head and leaned down to whisper something in his ear that the rest of us couldn't hear. 
the rest of you, look here, in the mirror. I craned my neck to get a better look. Gordon muttered something under his breath, and then Henry's reflection began to change. It was subtle at first, so gradual that I didn't think anything was happening at all. But before long I noticed the lines appearing on Henry's face. The soft laugh lines around his mouth first became more pronounced, then the crow's feet at the corners of his eyes dug into his skin. The wrinkles tore through the skin on his face. His reflection aged a lifetime in mere seconds. Henry stood, abruptly, breaking the spell. He stormed into the kitchen. Mark followed. I heard one of them vomit into the sink. And that, on that train through Siberia, is what I saw, and why I purchased this mirror from a stranger, Gordon said, folding the stool and returning it to his trunk. I looked around to Whitney, Melissa, and Bill. Whitney's brow was furrowed and she was sending disapproving glances my way. Melissa, on the other hand, had bought into Gordon's act, leaning forward, waiting for the next trick. Bill had retreated to the back of the room, and as I made eye contact, I could see the dread in his eyes, the regret that he had brought this weirdo into my living room. I smiled at him to reassure him. I was still having a great time. Gordon picked up the last of the small trinkets off the table and held it up to his audience between his thumb, fore, and middle fingers. A small four-inch blade with no handle. The metal of the blade was corroded and blackened. He made a show of being sure each of the four of us got a look and then launched into another story. This... This object I acquired while traveling in Denmark. It's said to be the ceremonial blade of a witch, and as you can see, he said, while indicating the lack of handle and what was now obviously char on the blade, this witch did not meet a fortunate end. Gordon placed the blade in his upright palm and cradled it lovingly. It is one of my most prized possessions. It contains powerful magics, imbued into the metal itself when the spirit of the witch who owned it met her fate. This enchanted blade makes possible the second part of the incantation the man in Siberia taught me. A spell he made me promise to never use, but will perform for you if you'd agree to it. He motioned to the mirror. The glass inside had begun to ripple like slowly running water, distorting the reflection inside. Will you help me finish it? Yes, I said, fully enraptured and eager to see the rest of what Gordon had planned. I was so caught up in the show, I hadn't noticed Melissa answer yes just as eagerly. She had already stood up and was walking toward Gordon. Now, the church thought the witch who owned this blade worshipped Satan. They accused her of marrying the Dark Lord Lucifer and so burned her at the stake, but they were wrong. She did not worship the devil, and she did not become his wife. She was in league with something much, much worse. You've already heard its common name several times here tonight, the Great Worm. The same being the man in Siberia told me was tied to this mirror. The same being that the Greeks mistook for a snake when they named Ophicus. He paused there, for effect no doubt, before grabbing Melissa's arm 
and blithely slicing her wrist with his rusty blade. Melissa yelped and tried to yank her arm away from Gordon, but he held it fast and let her blood drip into the stone bowl. Bill shouted and sprang forward. Whitney and I locked eyes. Mark shouted from the kitchen, what's going on? Guys, Henry is really not doing well. I attempted to stand up with the intention of rushing Gordon, but as I did, Gordon dipped his fingers into the liquid and spread a thin line of goo across the mirror. And in that moment, everything stopped. It was as if the breath had left my body all at once. No, not left my body. It was as if my breath was drawn out of my lungs. My strength was next. My arms fell limp to my sides. My legs ceased to work, and I fell back into my place on the couch. Melissa, with what little life she had left, tumbled to the floor with Bill. I heard Mike and Henry in the kitchen collapse into furniture, knocking glasses to the floor. My vision tunneled in straight to the mirror, and I heard Gordon laugh. I saw the reflection of the living room in the glass give way to the great worm, floating amongst the stars and twitching in delight. I looked down to myself, to my sunken chest, and saw the deep wrinkles in the skin on the back of my hands. With all the strength I could muster, I looked over to Whitney on the couch next to me, and I saw the greatest horror of all. The woman there was not my wife. It was some old woman I did not recognize, and between us, floating toward the mirror, the life that we never shared. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, Parlor Trick, was written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warren Key. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Mirrors and to Magics. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out the other shows. They're great. New episodes the first Thursday of every month, except when I have tech problems. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows.